0: I'm interested in ideas of demography and fertility. And your first question might be, well, what does that have to do with uh, religion? And what I'm going to argue is that it has a very great deal to do. And if you understand certain ideas and certain numbers, it helps you uh, to understand trends in uh, religion in pretty much any uh, country uh, around the world. And uh, I'll particularly talk about uh, a number of examples, a number of situations. Here's the uh, basic uh, uh, argument. Uh, We talk a lot about uh, what's called fertility rate, which is the number of uh, children that a typical woman would have in her uh, lifetime. Uh, That's a very good uh, guide to population and to lots of uh, other things. Um, It decides the uh, age structure of a society And what I'm going to argue, it tells you a lot about the religious prospects for that society. Issues like religious persecution, religious freedom. If a typical woman in her life has uh, 2.1 children, then that society is going to be pretty stable and uh, constant and the population will remain very steady. If it is far above that, if it is five or six children per woman, you'll have a young, expanding, and maybe unstable population. And if it's way below that, you'll have an aging society. So just, uh, and we we, we call that number replacement. So is it sub-replacement, whatever. Here's my argument. If a society is very low fertility, it is also low faith it is much more secular. If a society is very high fertility, it is high faith in the terms of being religiously uh, active. People are very enthusiastic about religion for good or ill. So you often get uh, religious uh, conflict. One of the most important things that has happened in the world over the last 40 or 50 years has been a shift to low faith, low fertility societies, which is affecting different regions of the world in a different way. It begins in Europe. In the 1960s, scholars of Europe started noticing a really interesting phenomenon. The the fertility rate was falling very steadily and sharply, most dramatically in Scandinavian countries like Denmark. 2.1 is replacement. These countries were producing 1.5, 1.4, So where are they going to find children? Where are they going to find the people to do the jobs and pay the taxes? Still an interesting issue. And people at the time said, well, this is really interesting, but this is obviously to do with those strange uh, Scandinavian people and it's to do with uh, Protestantism and it's North European culture. And so that's it, but it's a local interesting phenomenon. And then over time they said, well, no, it's not. It's going to more and more of Protestant Europe It's all over Protestant Europe. And in the 1970s, it starts hitting Catholic Europe. So some of the countries in the world with the lowest fertility rates now are countries like Italy and Spain, which are 1.2, very, very low fertility rates, very fast aging, and that affects the median age of a society. The, The median age of Europe, of the European Union these days, is uh, 42. In Africa, which I'll come back to in a moment, it's about 19. That is, because of this change in fertility, we're creating very different worlds, and as I'll suggest, very different religious environments. As fertility rates fall, collapse in Europe, that coincides almost exactly with a major shift to secularization. I'll talk about what the connection is in a moment. Europe in 1960 is still a very religious society. In Amsterdam, which we think of as one of the world's most secular cities, there are miraculous visions of the Virgin. There is a great deal of religious enthusiasm, religious involvement. That collapses and very, very closely follows the fertility uh, decline. During the 1970s and 1980s, we can measure this in lots of different ways. We can measure it by the number of people attending church, the number of people who are having vocations to the Catholic priesthood, um, by the spread of secular legislation that is very strongly opposed by the churches. In Catholic countries, uh, you get these uh, referenda and debates which approve, for example, uh, divorce, contraception, abortion, same-sex marriage. And now some of the world's most secular countries in legislation are countries that 40 or 50 years ago were thought of as rock solid, extreme religious Catholic countries, Um, Ireland, Belgium. So the most religious parts of the world have become the most secular parts of the world over the course of about 50 years. What is the connection, which comes first, the fertility decline or the faith decline? The answer is I'm not entirely sure because the two trends go together so closely. You could argue, for example, that fertility decline takes children out of the equation. You no longer have the same forces uh, that bind people to a local religious institution. If you don't have children going to first communion classes confirmation classes, um, whatever, people get more cut off from those institutions. You could argue that it's the faith that declines first, the religious involvement. People have less of an um, ideology that leads them to have large uh, families. But I want you to think for a moment about this fertility decline and what it means for a society. It means a society with far more Uh, old people, far fewer nuclear families. The nuclear family is no longer a a normal uh, uh, expectation. Far more um, unattached, lone younger people. Loneliness becomes much more of a phenomenon. The opportunities and the demands for church and religious ministries become enormous, and they change. If a church is still focused on the idea of young families going to school, they are living in a bygone world, at least in Europe. They need to think of ways of speaking to lone young people, lone old people, the unattached. And by the way, everything I'm saying there is before the pandemic. We're talking about a social and cultural revolution that also manifests in uh, religion. And, you know, I, I don't want to hit you about the head with statistics, but I, I, in uh, much of Europe, I often use what I call the rule of 10, which is if you look at religious statistics in for uh, involvement in institutions, as they were, say, in 1960, divide by 10, and you get a pretty good idea of what they are now. You're talking about an unparalleled historically Uh, decline in religious involvement. Fine. So that's Europe. And people called it a European revolution. They talked about Europe being distinct. And then something very strange happened. And, and, And as everyone knew, Europe was so distinct from the rest of the world. And the rest of the world had this great thing. Does anyone remember the population explosion that we talked about in the 1960s, when countries like uh, India and Mexico and Brazil had these enormously expanding populations, and Europe would soon be, and the phrase they used was, swamped by these uh, overseas populations. Well, a couple of things happened. First of all, in order to keep its society going, to do the jobs, to uh, pay the taxes, Europeans brought in a great many migrants from high fertility, high faith countries that resulted in a great uh, amount of uh, growth of newer religious patterns, especially Islam. And people looked at Europe and said, well, thank heavens, that is not our situation. They have all these problems. They have all these situations. And then you look at the rest of the world, and the European pattern of low faith and low fertility started becoming almost, but not entirely, global. The countries that are now demonstrating the most rapid Europeanization in terms of low fertility, low faith, are in East Asia, Southeast Asia, and Latin America. We used to talk about Latin America as the land of the great population explosion. We have some of the fastest falling fertility rates and fastest rising ages of population in countries now like Brazil and Chile and um, uh, uh, Argentina. We used to have this vision of the global south as characterized by very rapid um, population growth and fervent religion. Not true, has not been true for many years. Back in uh, 1970, the median age in Latin America was around about 19. It's now about 32. It will soon be much more like um, a European uh, pattern. We're dealing with a global trend in age. Excuse me, I didn't say entirely global. There are some big exceptions that I will talk about. And that is reflected in a fall, a collapse in institutional religion. Look, I'm sure you've read all the books about Latin America. You've read about the explosion of Protestant churches in Latin America. You know about the growth of Pentecostal churches in a land like uh, Chile, for example. And that's undoubtedly true. Catholic numbers have declined, Protestant numbers have grown. But by far the fastest growing numbers are neither Catholic nor Protestant. They're people who, when you ask them, say they are sin religión. They are no religion. They are nuns, N-O-N-E-S. There are now in Chile considerably more nuns than there are Protestants or Pentecostals. And that is reflected across the continent with a sharp decline in religion, sharp growth in people who are are not necessarily atheist, but they are secular by orientation. They do not go to a church or a religious institution. They probably believe in God, they might even pray, but they have nothing to do with institutions. And most crucially, they do not support religion when it comes to legislation if you have a survey or an election or a referendum over same-sex marriage, then that secular opinion will win. A low fertility society, like most of Latin America now, is a secular uh, society. Well, I can talk uh, a lot more uh, about this, but um, let me emphasize the areas where this trend is affecting and some of them I find very surprising and I think you may find them surprising. Let me tell you about one country in particular. In the mid-1980s in this country a typical woman in her life had 7.5 children. It was one of the highest fertility rates in the world and that country has gone in just 30 years from 7.5 to 1.5. And you think, well, my word, what is this country? It's um, Iran. Some of the fastest falling fertility rates in the world are found in the Islamic world. We often have a stereotype, I believe, which portrays Europe as being this aging, low fertility state uh, society, which is about to be overwhelmed by these hordes, excuse the stereotypes, from the Islamic world and the Islamic Middle East. If you look at much of the Islamic world, not all of it, it is becoming European. So you look at Iran and you think, well, you can't say Iran is becoming secular. Well, actually, you honestly can. Not long ago, the uh, Revolutionary Guard in that country, which is the most extreme kind of fanatical organization, the head of the Revolutionary Guard uh, made an interesting comment. He said that the country has 60,000 mosques, of which about 3,000 are ever used, even for holidays and uh, feasts and great celebrations. Where you can get any sense of people's actual religious views, you get a very high proportion of what we in the West would call nuns. That does not emerge in what the government says or thinks because the government is represents basically itself. Were you to have a genuine free election in a country like Iran, I think it would emerge as an extremely secular and European country. If that's true, (laughs) there are some other interesting examples in the world. I know another country that 30 years ago, excuse me, 25 years ago had a a fertility rate of 7.0, and that's now down to two. And you think, what is this? Saudi Arabia. We think of Saudi Arabia as a fast growing population, very high fertility, very high faith. It's not high fertility. It's now one replacement. What does this mean for coming years? Uh, And that rate is, is falling very fast, by the way. Can we imagine a secular Saudi Arabia? It almost hurts even to utter the sentence because it's so improbable. But it take another uh, society in the area. Um, if you look at the Arab Gulf countries, if you uh, look at countries like the United uh, Arab Emirates, extremely low fertility, European figures. So how do they do the jobs? How do they pay the taxes? Well, of course, they bring in immigrants, especially from the Indian uh, subcontinent. They bring in Muslims from Pakistan, and they bring in a great many Christians from South India and from the Philippines. As a result of that, the Arab Gulf now has a Christian population of around 10%. It's gone from virtually zero to 10% over the space of 50 or 60 years. So just as Europeans are worried about immigration bringing in Islam, the Arab Gulf has acquired a Christian population which is larger than the Muslim population in Europe. And driving this are issues of fertility and demography. Saudi Arabia has a very substantial Christian population, which it will not acknowledge the existence of. Different estimates say 7%, 10%. The official figure is zero, but we need not care about that. We're seeing something very interesting around the world. And I say this very crudely. If you tell me the fertility rate of a country around the world, I will make a very good guess, a very good estimate, as to how strong organized institutional religion is in that country, uh, how likely that country is to be tolerant on secular issues such as uh, same-sex marriage. Am I going to be perfect on my estimates? No, certainly not. But I can give you a pretty, a pretty good estimate. And I can also look at countries which 30 years ago were at the heart of the population explosion debate that are now down to replacement rate and falling very fast and think, so where are they going to be in 10 years? The Philippines is now just above replacement. Mexico is just above replacement. I, I still meet people and uh, even scholars um, who have this vision. Uh, and it, it's, a very, it's often a very sort of racially driven vision of Europe being overwhelmed by these uh, uh, huge populations from the third world. Those huge populations from the third world, and please hear that in quotes, aren't there anymore. And it, it's an interesting uh, thought. Uh, Europe has brought in a great many people from the uh, Middle East as migrants. Uh, Many of them are uh, Muslim. Those are the countries with some of the fastest falling fertility rates in the world, in countries like Algeria and Morocco and Tunisia. Where do you find your migrants if you can't find them there? And my suggestion is countries like France will be drawing in ever more people from Christian Africa. So how Europeans imagine migration has to be, uh, has to be thought and, uh, uh, and rethought. By the way, uh, I, I've talked about the um, Islamic world. The, uh, uh, the country that actually had the fastest falling rate in the Islamic world is, uh, uh, is Tunisia. And about uh, 15 years ago, a leading demographer made a prediction based on this. And he said, you know, Tunisia is going to be the heart of a great reform movement away from Islam and authoritarianism. And the man was literally laughed at at professional meetings. Roll the film forward to 2011. What country was the heart of the Arab Spring? Tunisia. And this gets connected with so many other things. And by this point, you're sitting there and you're saying, why is Jenkins missing the obvious point? So much of what I'm talking about here is changes in the role of. Women. This is a women's revolution. It's about women being drawn into professions and in higher education. Many of them are no longer prepared to have six or eight children. They simply uh, can, uh, cannot do so. And it might be the fertility rate, the uh, decline in faith are connected with, uh, directly with this. They probably are. But what I'm saying is the fertility rate is one way of measuring this. It's not the cause of everything. Whatever you're interested in, in business, in finance, in economics, in marketing, in retailing, this uh, demographic shift is enormously important for understanding the world uh, uh, presently. I've talked about declining rates. There are some exceptions and they are crucial. To give a long story short, there is one great area in the world that has absolutely resisted this fertility decline so far, and that is Africa. And as a response, uh, as a result of that, most of Africa, the great majority of Africa, remains an extremely high fertility and high faith society many implications. It means, for one thing, that the relative African share of global population will rise very steadily as this this century goes on. Uh, Probably in 1900, there were around um, 100 million uh, Africans. By 2050, there will be about 2.2 billion, probably 2.5 billion, and that number will grow steadily as the century uh, uh, goes on. In religious terms, it means that African Christians will represent an ever larger share of the global uh, Christian population. And because of migration, they will be ever more important to the Christian communities in Europe and in uh, uh, and in the United States. Um, so, uh, and by the way, uh, Christian uh, Muslims are also uh, growing very rapidly in Africa. Uh, African Islam will be a very major uh, force uh, in that way. So much of the world's religious story in the coming 40 or 50 years will be an African story. And demography is driving that, uh, relative demography. Uh, the stability or decline in other parts of the world, and the still continuing rise in, uh, in, uh, in Africa. Again, many uh, political implications uh, to that, religious implications. A high fertility society, a very high fertility society, tends to be very young. It has what we call a youth bulge that is a great many people uh, between the ages of 15 to 24. The good news about that is young communities like that are very responsive to um, enthusiastic, passionate religion, deep involvement in uh, religious life, willing to respond to crusades and revivals. The bad news is a society with youth bulge tends to be unstable and often violent. And in the world today, the absolute Highest oh, yeah. fertility rates are, are usually oh, found no, in the African uh, Sahel, in countries like uh, Mali and uh, Burkina Faso, and many of the countries that, as I think we all know, are really troubled by uh, a great deal of, oh, violence and guerrilla warfare and failed states uh, uh, and so on. So, uh, The African story uh, is different. Some of the fertility rates are uh, astonishing by the standards of the rest of the world. And uh, that is a fundamental part of looking at the story of the next few decades. And you may well ask, um, will African rates uh, decline? Yes, of course they will. But even if they decline in 20 or 30 years, that cohort of young people is still there. And this will not prevent Africa being, by far, the most Christian continent by 2050, when for the first time there will be over a billion Christians on one continent, and that will be Africa. By the way, that does not include the African diaspora. It does not include uh, people of African origin in Latin America, or Europe, or wherever. OK, let me move to one other uh, topic, uh, I know I'm uh, doing a you know, very rapid survey here. I hope we can talk a lot uh, about these things in questions. I've talked about countries that have high or low fertility rates. Countries are not united. And many countries around the world have differential rates of development. You can have a country, where you have a prosperous, economically advanced, dynamic, urbanized area with very low European fertility rates. In the same country, you can have large rural areas with very high fertility rates. Often that correlates very closely to religion. The progressive urban populations tend to be very secular. Cities often tend to be secular. The rural areas are extremely religious. And there are some countries in the world, some critical countries where the, what shall I say? I'm trying to avoid the word clash, but yes, the clash between those two very different kinds of community comes to be politically important. Imagine, imagine if you had a government And you have those two communities. You have a progressive, urban, low-fertility society and a high-fertility religious community. Where do you turn your support to? Well, many people would say um, you will go for the people who have the votes, the large numbers of people who are more religious. And i give you a couple of examples. Uh, Turkey for example, notionally has a fertility rate that is around replacement. Within Turkey, you have areas to the west that are completely European, that are basically Danish, that have rates of maybe 1.2, 1.3, and they're very secular. In the south and east of the country, you have uh, rural and far less developed areas with rates of 4.5, very high fertility, very religious. If you show me the fertility rate of a particular uh, state in Turkey, um, it gives me an excellent idea as to how that state is going to vote and how it's going to respond to the very Islamist uh, politics of the government in power in Turkey, the uh, AKP, uh, and uh, Mr. Erdoğan. Erdoğan has been playing demographic politics He draws his votes from the, what we might call the Quran belt, like the Bible belt in the United States. These very high fertility, uh, very religious uh, society who want uh, Turkey to be a more religious nation. If you want to understand Turkey, you understand that there are two um, communities within Turkey, both quite high fertility. And he wants to uh, persuade the Turks to, Uh, move to ever higher fertility, to have ever more children, to outnumber the Kurds. He sees this as an existential issue. If you do not pay attention to those demographic fertility issues, it means two things. First of all, uh, you will have no idea whatever of why the Turkish government behaves as it does. And secondly, uh, if you are so neglectful of those factors, it probably means you work for the US State Department, because they have systematically ignored those demographic uh, features, which I think for, for many of us are um, so basic, uh, they're, they're axiomatic. Uh, the, the other country uh, I would point to in this way that has radically different uh, fertility rates is, uh, is India. Um, many Westerners still have a sense of India in terms of the uh, population explosion stereotypes that existed in the 1960s, 1970s, when India had a fertility rate of approximately uh, six uh, children per woman, 6.0, very, very high fertility. That has changed radically. That is now a little above uh, replacement, but you have um, extreme Differences between and among states in fertility. Half the states of India are now well below replacement. Some are actually uh, Danish in the, uh, Scandinavian uh, in, their, uh, in their numbers. Others are much more traditional high fertility societies. The high fertility uh, states are the ones which are also associated with the more uh, um, uh, Hindutva the nationalist, uh, Hindu nationalist um, policies. Uh, We're looking at uh, uh, Bihar, uh, Uttar Pradesh, uh, Madhya Pradesh. Um, again, um, a map of fertility will give you quite a good idea uh, of the, Support for um, for different uh, uh, parties and uh, particularly for uh, uh, for Mr Modi in uh, in recent um, uh, il- uh, elections. The politics of religion, of religious identity, of religious nationalism, are often rooted in high fertility in uh, 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 in demography. So. I'm suggesting really quite a, um, a complex series of implications here, and uh, India and Turkey are just two of the uh, the, uh, the examples. Um, the, the other country, which is very interesting, is um, Israel. Israel is a politically uh, a um, a Jewish nation. Jewish communities are radically divided between different kinds of faith, which corresponds almost perfectly to fertility. If you are a, uh, a, a secular Jew and you might be associated with the Reformed tradition, you will probably have an extremely low Scandinavian-style fertility rate. The Orthodox and the Ultra-Orthodox have some of the highest fertility rates in the world, 6.5, uh, for example. And the implications of this is that, uh, first of all, Prime Minister Netanyahu has survived, uh, survived for a great many years despite repeated scandals by being able to rely on those conservative high-fertility uh, populations. It also means in the long run that uh, Israel is becoming much more religious in its politics, orthodox and ultra-orthodox. That might be good, that might be bad, but my point is without the... Um, demographic dimension, it, it really uh, makes little sense. So to, uh, to pull this together, assume for the sake of argument that what I'm saying is uh, correct there, what are some of the implications for the kind of interests we may have, the kind of work that we, we may do? Obviously very different in different parts of the world. For Europeans, for people in a country like uh, Great Britain, for example, one of the implications is we are dealing with a radically uh, different society, not just because it is, quote, secular, but because the kind of communities we are serving, we're trying to uh, organize outreach to, have very different needs from what uh, their parents or grandparents did, and churches have have to adapt uh, accordingly, Let me stress, I'm not suggesting that these, quote, low faith societies, unquote, are necessarily atheist. What it means is they're separated from institutional and organized uh, religion. Often there is quite a high level of what you might call faith activity. A great many Europeans who are very secular in the way they don't go to churches, are passionately involved in pilgrimage. We live today in the golden age of European pilgrimage while the churches are abandoned. It suggests that there is material there for Christian churches uh, to build on, but they have to adapt their uh, policies accordingly. Um, For one thing, uh, Europe increasingly is going to have by far, by far the oldest society known in human history with a huge number of people in their 80s, 90s, and older. What are the needs? What are the opportunities for churches in that world? It also means in other communities they are moving uh, moving towards this situation. The good news is they have more uh, notice that this situation is coming. How do they uh, adapt? If you are interested in the political issues, issues, critical issues of uh, religious freedom, religious uh, persecution, I would suggest to you that demography is a very important analytical tool and a predictive tool. uh, tool. Uh, It helps you understand trends as they are developing. It helps you understand the reasons and the background for a government or a group um, have uh, having particular uh, policies. How one responds to this, we we can discuss. Uh, but I, I would suggest that there, this is a uh, uh, this is a major force driving religious conflict, where you have two or more religious communities which are socially, demographically so different. That does a lot to explain the uh, explain the clash. Now. What I'm absolutely not trying to do is to uh, offer a a one-size-fits-all explanation that this is uh, Jenkins' magic number. It clearly is not. What I'm saying is that I am observing a correlation that seems to work well and seems to offer uh, a good um, analysis. High fertility st- uh, states tend to be Republican, low fertility uh, states tend to be uh, religious and uh, t- tend to be l- less religious and uh, democratic. Um, low fertility s- states have far larger proportions of nuns. The proportion of nuns in the United States has grown. So the US now has three main religious communities numerically evangelicals, Catholics, and nuns and the nuns are moving very rapidly to become the largest. And again, if you map the growth of the nuns, it correlates so nicely with a fall in the US fertility rate, which is now at or below that of Denmark. And perhaps the most interesting thing for me is how counterintuitive so much of what we're looking at here is in terms of people's stereotypes. There are still intelligent people who will look at a country like, as I say, India and think in terms of, oh, yes, yes, third world uh, population profile. Not anymore. Not anymore. 50 years ago, yes. Uh, That shift is crucial to so much. So that's why I believe that uh, fertility is a very important marker for understanding faith. And the subtitle of my book was the uh, the, uh, the demographic revolution that is transforming all the world's religions. And I will come back to that. If you're interested in Buddhism, if you're interested in Islam, uh, any major religious tradition, you have to look at that uh, dimension. So with your permission, I will um, wind up my presentation at that point, and I will throw open for any uh, questions Debate or cries of nonsense. Thank you very much. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of ReligionUnplugged.com and is a part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit ReligionUnplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.